Welcome to Rag Trader Radio, a behind the scenes look at the latest in the Australian fashion industry. This episode is proudly brought to you by Klarna. Klarna has been connecting the world's biggest brands with shoppers for over 15 years. Let your customers pay with flexibility, give them the freedom to shop when inspired, and pay later. Boost sales increase average order value, and keep your customers coming back for more. Boost your business with Klarna, online and in-store. Visit klarna.com.au. Hi there. Welcome to Rag Trader Radio. You're with me, Imogen Bailey, Associate Editor of Rag Trader. Today, I'm joined by Larry Kesselman, Larry is a serial entrepreneur and is the executive chairman of LK Group, which specializes in investments across retail, property, and sport. In the past year, he's acquired Paz Group, which has brands including Review, Black Pepper, and Design Works, as well as Brand Collective, which houses brands including Superdry, Hush Puppies, Folly, and Shoes and Socks. I'm going to be talking to Larry today about what makes a good fashion retail acquisition, the challenges for retailers, and the opportunities for growth. Thanks so much for joining me, Larry. Pleasure. Good to see you. Today, we're going to be talking about um, all things acquiring fashion businesses, which you are an absolute pro and expert in. And I guess, Larry, where I want to start is looking at purchasing fashion retail businesses, um, namely Brand Collective and Paz Group, which are in your portfolio. I want to know what are some of the key criteria you're looking for when you're purchasing a brand and what exactly sort of drove you to Brand Collective and Paz Group? Yeah, I think I start by saying that I don't look at fashion businesses any different to the way I would look at any normal business. So you have to assess all the criteria. And I usually start with the basics and, and understand who are the people running the businesses and can, can I actually make a difference myself and my group and the people that I work with? Can we make a difference in those businesses? If I don't feel we have anything to add, uh, then we'll probably walk away. So it's not just about looking at the finances or, or what the business is about or what industry it's in. It's about what do we bring to those businesses? So with Paz and, and Brand Collective, we, we really thought that there's something to be uh, to be added of value uh, from us. With uh, with Paz, I was already the second biggest shareholder in that business, so I, I knew it quite intimately. So that uh, really helped. But uh, but I have to say, I didn't look at it any differently to any other business I would. And what do you think are some of kind of the key things that you can bring to a business when you when you buy it? I think I've found that um, the businesses we've bought have already had a great start. I don't necessarily think that we're buying businesses that are uh, always either in trouble or um, or are desperate for our help. But I certainly think the status quo of those businesses is that either the founders or the people that have been round, uh, running them have stagnated or have found themselves in trouble. And, and with Paz in particular, that was the scenario of them being a public company I think they maybe lost their way a little bit with direction. They had a majority owner from overseas who had certain visions but was running the business uh, a little bit by remote control from uh, another country being US. So there were a lot of challenges, I think, with the board and the direction. So it may be lost its way. I think that's the, the fair thing to say. Uh, and then maybe a little opportunistically when uh, COVID hit, that was the last nail in the coffin for, for that business. We, we thought when we had a look at it that we had a lot that we can change about the business, uh, give it new lease of life, give it new direction, uh, bring the enthusiasm and the, and the marketing now that I think we have. Uh, the financial strength as well. I think it's always hard to conduct business when 
you're not in a position of strength. So that's something that our group always prided ourselves on, that um, we do it from a position of strength. I guess it's interesting too to kind of look at the PAS group and the brand collective businesses um, because obviously they're both made up of multiple brands, which in itself can be quite challenging, um, especially in this really crowded competitive retail space that we see. How do you kind of, I guess, evolve each brand so that you they each have their own customer that they're targeting, but also kind of maintaining, I guess, their original identity that appealed to the customer base that they currently have? I mean, how do you kind of go about making the brands new while retaining the existing customers? Yeah, I didn't think we had to change a lot with the brands themselves. I think what attracted us to these companies is the fact that they do have very, very good brands. And uh, I think uh, business in general and fashion in in particular, we're more and more drawn to brands. Um, Clothes and uh, importing yourself uh, any old brand out of China, I think that used to be quite a popular flavor of the year and people popping up with shops and uh, bringing clothes in themselves. And I think that's all gone by the wayside. I think people are very brand driven. So when we had a look at the brands in Paz, in the Paz group, so brands like Review, Black Pepper, Everlast, Lonsdale, they have very, very loyal and established client bases. And and that's not just the actual end client, uh, but the actual people that buy our product at wholesale as well put a lot of value on those brands. So I think brands in this uh, cannot be underestimated. And the same with Brand Collective. When we looked at it, uh, that's what was attractive to us. And uh, I think that's what brings longevity and, and value to the client. So having um, brands like um, Clark's, Hush Puppies on the, on the footwear side of things, super dry. Uh, they're well-loved brands, well-established. And the two really gelled well together. Uh, one in Paz Group was probably 70% fashion, 30% shoes, and the other one was the other way around. Uh, they've got a very strong network of shops through uh, shoes and uh, shoes and socks uh, that we intend to grow, and that's a wonderful retail story and, uh, and going really, really strong with a very loyal client base. And you mentioned earlier, I guess, that the nail in the coffin being COVID. And obviously, through 2020 and 2021, we've really seen, I guess, the challenges at the bricks and mortar space. And like you mentioned, Paz Group has quite a large store network, similar for um, brand collective in select brands that do the D2C um, bricks and mortar stores. So, I'm wondering how you've kind of gone about keeping the retail or or using the retail stores while they've been shut? Have you been fulfilling product from stores there? Have you been, um, you know, kind of moving inventory in and out of stores to be able to fulfill online orders? I mean, what did you kind of do with these huge retail networks during this this COVID period? Yeah, I think all of the above. I think everything you've mentioned and uh, and that's how we look at these businesses where we've been in, in business for a long time. So, uh, it was all hands on deck and there's a lot of smart people both at our sort of group level and uh, in each individual business. And we've put a a plan in place that uh, addresses not one of those things, but there's probably 50 different things that we're actually doing uh, of how you adjust to COVID and how do you operate in COVID uh, and remain still viable and and operate your stores as you need to. So there was not necessarily one formula. Uh, I think between the arrangements of the rental discounts, between using the stores as delivery centres, uh, we, we're lucky that we have a number of arrangements that are turnover-based arrangements. So you literally have to look at every facet of your business and see where can you cut costs, how do you operate more efficiently. And I think uh, companies may be a little bit more old school. We, we, I think we're, we're quite uh, nimble and I think we, we look at business in a very different way. I think some of the more old school 
organizations may be in a lot more trouble than we are. I mean, it hasn't been easy for us and not easy for our customers and in retail in general, but we found a way and a formula how to survive and how to actually continue trading and, and clearing stock and, uh, and what it is that we need to do as, a, as an organization. So you have to put in place cash flow management. You have to really look at every aspect of your business. And this is not a, a week or a two lockdown. This is, a, this is almost how do you operate as a, as a new norm uh, when your lockdown lasts for four or five months. So, and, and that's been a challenge, but um, going back to why I bought these businesses, I, I very much looked at the people that are running the businesses and why is it that they maybe weren't quite as successful as they should be. And I truly felt for by far the majority of it, it wasn't the people that were working in there. So uh, I love the team and they're uh, smart cookies and, and extraordinarily hardworking. So we all got together and and found a way. That's what you do. You find a way. And I think we're going to come out of it very, very strong. And I guess um, that's one of the advantages of operating a, a private equity company is that I guess the private equity is known to be quite ruthless when it comes to costs and cutting costs and, and being very strategic with decisions that involve cost of doing business, rent, etc. all these kind of overheads that retailers sort of have to deal with. So, coming back to, I guess, the new way of doing things and, and being quite strategic in those decisions. And we've seen with a lot of retailers as well, having to have these discussions with their landlords about, and this was pre-COVID as well, about the kind of role that their store plays in terms of online sales and the bricks and mortar store. So, we've seen previous to COVID and now really accelerated during this time, I guess the question of what stores, what role do the stores play and how, do the, how does the digital side of the business play into it? Is the store purely the showcase piece where you can tell the brand story? Is the store the place where all the transactions are done and the online is where you tell the story? And then fulfilling from stores as well, the online orders too. So, it's an interesting space to be in and I guess those negotiations with what counts as a sale towards a retail store versus the online when you've got that sort of omni-channel operation happening how do you sort of view the digital side of the business? Because I know that that is a big focus for your business strategy is that when you acquire these fashion retailers that have a lot of history previously in the bricks and mortar space, you kind of go, okay, that's fantastic, but we're really focusing on the digital. So, I'm wondering what is your sort of thoughts around the digital side of things in the business and how that sort of plays into the bricks and mortar? Yeah, I think go back to what we were talking about with the lockdowns and uh, and what it means for these businesses. I, I think these days you just cannot afford to be uh, not excellent at every part of your business. And it's not about what you like or what your history is. And, and, and I think where retail maybe has, um, has gone a little bit astray is they do what they love. And a lot of the people have come through the world of loving to be in the store and loving to sell at retail and that customer engagement and, and they're fantastic at it, you know, merchandising the windows and doing all those things that they've done for a long time. And my view of it is I don't even want to use the fancy terminology within the rag trade of you know, omni channels. And so I, I just look at it differently. I go, well, you just follow the customer. You follow the customer, mm-hmm. you follow what it is that they want, how they're buying, what are the trends um, and you let them buy how they want to buy. So, Sure. During lockdowns, a lot of it went online and there was a, a huge uptake of, um, of interest from people that normally you wouldn't even expect to be buying online. But that's accelerated a little bit. But I don't think it's necessarily going to stay this way. I, I think people still are now want to shop uh, in store. And for all the conversations about 
how much your online has grown and so on, um, I would say 80, 85% of, of sales will remain at store level for a very long time. So all you need to do is you need to, you absolutely need to adjust and have a look at what your cost stack is and how much is rent and how much are you paying towards that contribution. If your sales are going backwards by 10, 15% and there's more and more happening online, you do need to look at the rent and you need to look at all your costs. Rent is a, is a big input, but it's certainly not the only one. So all costs need to be managed and keep looking at the model because if you don't, that's how a lot of businesses end up with their, you know, blockbuster moment or Kodak moments and, and all those. You, you absolutely have to follow and listen very carefully where the customers are, how they're buying, what is it that they want from your business. And, um, and without a doubt, we've come in and we've grown the online component, which some of the businesses were already pretty good at. And I think we've grown it from there. And if that requires further investment and, and further focus, um, and prioritize it. So without a doubt, we've made it a bigger priority, but in no way taking away from the retail stores because that's where still a big portion of the of the business is done. So for, for me, it's uh, becoming, let's say, from the outside, not from the fashion industry. Uh, it's pretty simple view the way I look at it, and that is I understand what your customer wants, and each brand is a little bit different. You know, a black pepper customer is certainly not the same as a as a review customer or a super dry customer. You know, slightly older audience, they certainly will buy online, but we focus a bit more on on their store experience or even doing the old-fashioned things that work really well, picking up the phone and calling your clients uh, at a quiet moment in the store. The old-fashioned phone still works and they love to hear from uh, from their store manager, whereas maybe a, a review client will not be that excited to hear uh, someone calling them. So it's just really knowing your customer. It's it's the old-fashioned way of, I think, doing business where it's not as complicated as sometimes people make it out. It's know your customer really well and give them what they want. And it's funny that you sort of mentioned how the focus on the digital side of things, which is obviously such a modern new age way of retailing in the grand scheme of things, and yet still the traditional principles of being in contact with your customers forming that relationship, having that rapport, that is just very classic kind of traditional methods. And yet the combination of the two obviously still really work. But Larry, I want to touch on something that you just mentioned before, which was that some of the customers that you maybe weren't expecting to shop online obviously have done so during the pandemic. So I'm wondering which which of those customers were you sort of surprised, I guess, to see um, shopping online? Well, I think it's forced the slightly older demographic that maybe resisted and uh, I'm probably a very good example of that. Uh, I've shopped online before but probably not to the extent that um, I have through um, through the lockdowns and through COVID. Just necessity. So people that maybe were on the fringe or doing a little bit of shopping all of a sudden um, have been forced to do a lot more and um, I'm going to be certainly one that will go back to the stores but I will also be one that will increase his spend online from what it was pre-COVID. So um, no doubt it's that slightly older demographic that maybe wasn't quite as um, as interested in the online shopping prior. But I think it'll be overall. I think it'll, it'll be felt across the board, but maybe more specifically in the slightly older demographic. And it's interesting too to kind of discuss, I guess, the uptick that we'll see after the, well, once we're allowed out and retail reopens, in previous lockdowns, I'm interested to know what is sort of the behavior that you see? Do you see a really massive lift in the stores sort of the week that lockdowns are ended? 
because everyone just wants to get out and then sort of slowly see that to taper off or does it kind of remain sustained? I mean, what do you kind of expect to see customer behaviour-wise once um, people are allowed to make the choice between shopping online and shopping in-store? Yeah, I think I've found it to be a little bit more of a turtle effect. I think people stick their neck out just a little bit out of their house and and have a look around and um, we actually found that they're not uh, rushing out that same day and uh, and filling their bags. It's it's a little bit of a more of a gradual effect, but but I am overall quite positive about where I think retail will end up. Uh, I think the timing for the lockdowns to be finishing, I would have liked them to be a little bit earlier, I think like all of us, but at least it's heading into the busiest time of the year with uh, Christmas. So I, I think everyone's had enough of being locked down and uh, and shopping online. I think people have enjoyed and uh, I've certainly got more active wear than I think I I will be for the next uh, 10 years. So, no, I I think retail will bounce back nicely, but I I don't expect everyone day one to be rushing out. I think it'll be a couple of weeks just whilst people find their feet. And I think it'll be a bit weird, especially for those of of us in Melbourne to just be generally outside and shopping. So I think we're just going (laughs) to take it a little gradually. Absolutely. And it's also interesting too, I guess, coming up to Black Friday as well because in Australia that tends to be um, a big online sort of event whereas obviously taking a look at America um, over there, it is a huge retail event over there that you go in store and you line up and you wait for the you know most exclusive deals of the year and then you have the Cyber Monday which is mostly online. Um, but that sort of behaviour I guess hasn't really translated to Australia and we tend to see a lot more Black Friday activity happening online. So how's Black Friday do you think going to look this year given that people um, will be allowed to shop uh, in store at that point or will you plan to do special things in store to kind of encourage that behaviour? I, I do think it's more of an online event here as well from where I'm I'm seeing it and it's something that we're planning to be quite a substantial online event. Uh, we'll do things at, at store level, of course, as well, but uh, I do see it growing every year and it has grown over the last couple of years and, and in particular online. So uh, I think it's how you start is probably how it will continue. Retraining people is hard. So I think everyone quite likes the online event now and everyone's lining up for their special so and 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 I, some people love it i certainly don't and i know a lot of people don't either the the whole elbow throwing and, and rushing into stores is in my mind a little bit uh, overrated so uh if unless you're into that sort of thing i'll think a lot of people will stick to the online online shopping and um just looking, I guess, to the future, and you touched on it a bit before, I guess, just following the customer and how they want to shop. And, and some retailers, traditional retailers might say, oh, well, you know, Black Friday isn't my favorite because it pulls all my Christmas sales, you know, a month ahead. And then I don't have anything in Christmas. And and in previous conversations that we've had, you've sort of mentioned and you have mentioned today just about following the customer and being there wherever they want to shop and how they want to shop. and. I guess with this focus in digital and we're seeing it grow every year and especially during COVID, like you say, with the shift that's happened that people will sustain some level of their purchasing online and then as we progress further and further, obviously the younger generation coming up being quite used to online shopping, that that will overall grow to a larger percentage of total retail sales. So I guess where my question to you, Larry, is, is where does the bricks and mortar store sit? I mean, you, you talk about being there in any sort of form where the customer wants to shop, how they want to, and being just having giving them the choice to shop how they want to. But 
how how are landlords kind of coming to the idea that maybe the store isn't the place where all the sales get done? Yeah, I, I think it's you talk about um, the cycle as well. A lot of the leases are done on sort of anywhere between three to five years. So I think it gives you an opportunity to always reset and have a look. Is that store still working? Do I truly need it in my network? You look at your maps and where, where can you cover it? I, I think the idea is you need to be have enough stores to give your, give your customers the option to go to a store, but no more. Um, and yes, rents absolutely need to be reviewed in line with what value they bring. And I don't think everyone is equal. You know, a, a Chadston shopping center is not necessarily the same as another one. So if they bring you the volume of traffic and they bring you the customer to your door, that's their job. So you pay rent accordingly. So every three to five years, uh, I think you need to have a serious assessment of every store when it comes up. Do you truly need it or has it served its purpose and can you potentially uh, get rid of it? And I think a lot of organizations in the past lived in a, in a world where closing stores was not really uh, an option or an option of absolute last resort. I, I look at it differently and go, I'd, I'm very happy to close more stores if that's if my customers are telling me that they don't need it anymore. So if the volume of customers coming through there uh, is substantially dropping or the coverage between other stores can happen, you have to look at it that way because you're competing against purely online players who have no stores. And uh, if you're not careful, you will go out of business. And, and that's what we were able to do. And in particular with Paz, as, as bad as it was through the administration when we bought it, we were able to have a complete review of all the stores, understand uh, what works, what doesn't, and um, and make the changes accordingly. And we'll continue that program as we go. But as an example, we're, we're actually opening stores now, not closing stores. So we're backfilling where we think our customers actually want the stores. So our program is actually quite aggressive on opening stores rather than uh, rather than closing it. We, we anticipate to open 25, anywhere between 25 and 40 stores over the next uh, 12 months. So, um, yeah, it's not, I think, all doom and gloom. You need to do it on the right deals. You need to do it in the right locations. Be very analytical. I think there's a lot of a lot of data out there. I think doing it the old-fashioned way in a gut feel doesn't work either. I think you, you really need to understand where your customers are and whether they truly want a store there or not. So, uh, And for us, because we're not a completely traditional private equity firm where something a bit of a hybrid between a private equity and a family office we look at opportunities like stores and opening stores and we're not as worried if we have to invest into businesses because we don't have an exact uh, timeline for an exit so we're quite happy to invest into what's needed for that business and so that I guess attitude towards the stores and and it's interesting that you kind of mentioned I guess opening the stores now after sort of a period of of closing those locations that you're now opening in are they similar in any way in terms of level of center are they individual standalone stores are they within shopping centers like can you talk me through I guess some of the the key criteria you're looking for when you're looking at stores and store locations yeah and, and that's that's another thing that um, I think in large organizations and maybe in the old way of doing it you, you'd have a theory and you'd have a particular uh, direction and you might say well I want my stores in shopping centers that's the safe way to go that's where a lot, a lot of traffic is and that's where we need to be we don't look at it that way. We, we look at it again down to you, you have to look at it more like as in my property, wearing my property hat. It's not even about the city. It's not even about the suburb, not even about the street. It's the particular block of land. And the same here. I think you have to be very, very specific. So in one location, a 
shopping center store will absolutely be the right answer. In another one, it will be a strip shopping center. So for a brand like Black Pepper, for example, we're very happy and confident to open stores in uh, regional centers and uh, in street locations rather than shopping centers. But having said that, we'll, we'll also open in a shopping center if the right site comes up. So I, I will not give you an overall uh, general direction because there is none. It's about looking at every opportunity on its merits. And if we think we need a store, for example, in this particular area, and if we the customer demand is there, then it's a matter of balancing up and going, what is the brand? How does our customer interact with that brand? Where do they go? What's the cost of the actual, um, the actual spot? What's the rental involved? And uh, what's the size of the store? What do we need? It needs to be looked upon at, at each individual uh, scenario. You cannot have a general trend. So we, we don't look at it that way at all. It's about, again, looking at our customer and in that area for that brand, what is the best solution? And it's interesting, I guess, to think about it as a like a purchase of any other kind of property. You know, what is the best deal? And it's um, it's yeah, it's interesting, I guess, because obviously previous retail plans potentially were well, we only want to be in premium centres, or we only want to be in strip shop locations, or we only want to be in twenty five percent shopping centres, seventy five percent strip shops. So it's an interesting, I guess, way to approach it. And and thinking about it, I guess, from that private equity position again it's that way of figuring out what what the best well that sounds to me like a very that, that sounds to me like a someone who wants their job to be nice and easy that's a very easy way uh, i spent the first week just coming up with a strategy i wrote it up and then uh, i can go home for the rest of the year no i, I think that's a very uh, lazy approach to have how to look at property you really have to understand and to the point you got to walk uh, you got to walk the, the street you got to have a look you got to have a little feel for who's there, what time are they there, what's going on. Uh, if to do the job properly, you really need to look at every scenario on its own merits. And I just want to touch back, I guess, on something that you mentioned earlier too, which was the fact that you don't have any kind of strict timelines for investment and that kind of gives you a little bit more freedom to make choices that potentially other private equity companies might not be able to. And and one of the, I guess, criticisms of um, private equity in fashion is is that really short kind of investment timeframe. They come in, they do a bunch of things that are really good and, and get a lot of short-term gain and then sort of leave the business with all this stuff um, and potential debt and then sort of have to enter the uh, administration process. Um, and that has sort of happened with different fashion brands in Australia. Um, a lot happened in 2019, but it, not so much since um, COVID hit and stuff. But I'm wondering how you kind of, I guess, do is that your is that your idea of how private equity in fashion operates? I mean, what do you sort of have to say to, to that argument? I think private equity employs and works with some of the smartest people I've uh, I've actually met. So um, I don't think that's a 100% fair assessment. I think it's obviously happened and you're being very factual. So that's correct. But I think private equity comes in and they certainly try to set up businesses the way they should be run. Uh, they can be accused a little bit of going too hard on the cost cutting. I think that's true because they do have that time frame. And uh, for them, they ultimately trying to exit on a multiple of some sort. So um, anyone who's buying from a private equity, as we have just done, for example, with Brand Collective, we bought from a private equity company. Uh, we, we come in there with eyes wide open, understanding that there's uh, not a lot of cost cutting to be done, uh, that they've been there and they've done that, that it's the other way around. We probably need to add some 
uh, cost to the business and uh, and give it a new lease of life and why are we there? So uh, that's the only thing that I would say. Anyone who looks at um, selling to private equity or traditional private equity needs to understand who they are and what sort of a beast and what their outcome they're looking for. They're looking to improve the business, which um, they very often do. And I would say in most cases, uh, they improve the business. It doesn't always go according to plan. Uh, everyone's human and they make mistakes. But I think it um, it's all about just being honest with yourself why you're selling to private equity in the first place. So people sometimes don't like the uh, the outcome, but that's what the outcome was always going to be. They were always going to come in and look at uh, uh, how to aggressively grow the business, how to cut costs, and uh, hopefully in the three-year window be out there at as high a multiple as they can. That's what they do. So just you know, be careful what outcome you want and uh, you, you'll probably get it. So if you're selling to private equity, nothing wrong with it. I think it's a, it's a great outcome if that's what you want and um and if it's not don't don't do it and it's interesting i guess because the purchases that you've made brand collective and paz group as you say have kind of on that growth path now and not so much the cutting costs and and trying to slim everything down to then grow so what i guess is kind of next for brand collective and paz group um as you kind of see in the next year or so what are you what, what are you aiming to achieve so for, for us, it's been number one. And mind you, I've only been the owner of Brand Collective for a month and a half. So it's early days for us. But um, it's bringing the vigor back of growth. Uh, as private equity was in there, they certainly weren't prepared to invest huge amounts into idea of growing. So for us, with both as and Brand Collective, organic growth is really important, improving that digital marketing uh, and looking at marketing in general. How do we grow? We have a wonderful stable of brands. Uh, how do we grow? So shoes and socks, we're looking to grow the number of stores and seeing how we can improve them and, and cross-sell and w- what else uh, can those models uh, bring? We're, we're quite lateral think- thinkers, so we want to uh, see how else we can grow those businesses. On the other hand, we'll look at other uh, mergers and acquisition opportunities where we're on the hunt for looking for companies that we think will complement the two that we already have. Uh, they're big businesses. The, these businesses, you know, turn over over half a billion dollars and, and growing and, and doing well. So we we have aspirations to continue the growth. That's what we're here for. And we have no timeframes around. We, I don't really care how long we own the businesses for. It may very well be that we own them forever. I'm not, not too fussed about that um, outcome either. As long as they're good businesses and they're doing well, I'd be quite happy with that. If uh, if not, we'll, we'll look at other opportunities. And I guess one of the key areas for growth as well across both the businesses is the wholesale and in Paz Group, especially the design works business, which is um, the licensing side of things. And, and Brand Collective um, also has a really strong kind of licensing side. So, do you have any kind of key goals that you want for that wholesale license businesses? Yeah, more brands. That's what that's what we're about. Uh, we have a wonderful team and uh, our job is to represent brands. That's That's what we do. Uh, whether it's an own brand or whether it's something that we hold the license, we treat them the same. We're, we're proud of the brands that we have and, and that's what we do. We love it. Uh, representing brands and growing brands, that's, uh, that's our goal. So we, we deal with every, every retailer, I think, just about in, uh, in Australia of any size. So representing brands, we, we love it. So we'll be out there on the hunt for more brands. That's, uh, that's what our goal for those wholesale businesses are. And it sounds like a, a really interesting place to be given that COVID has kind of pushed everyone to really reassess their business and, and how they're going to move forward. Um, Larry, those were 
the big questions that I had for you today. It's been a really interesting chat to hear about how you kind of go about acquiring businesses, how you then grow them, your sort of key strategies behind the growth. So I really appreciate you joining me today on Rag Trader Radio. It's been a pleasure to listen to you and hear your insights. Thanks so much. Absolute pleasure. And for the audience, if you liked this episode, please feel free to share it with your colleagues so they can enjoy it too. You've been listening to Rag Trader Radio, produced by Southern Skies Media on behalf of Rag Trader, owned and published by Yaffa Media. The views of the people featured on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of Rag Trader, Yaffa Media, or the guest's employer. The contents are copyright by Yaffa Media. If you wish to use any of this podcast's audio, please contact us via the website or send an email to info at yaffa.com.au. You can subscribe to this podcast via your preferred platform and read all the latest news on Australia's fashion industry at ragtrader.com.au. You've been listening to a Yappa Media Podcast. Southern Skies Media.